Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Jonathan Cruz case was hastily investigated by authorities, but many questions remain. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Wysocki as she uncovers the truth about what happened to Jonathan. This is Without Warning. Warning, the following episode contains elements that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. So many of us have questions about Jonathan Cruz and the investigation. With the theme of pulling back the curtain, I thought I would have my podcast listeners listen to a session of my Patreon listeners. In this episode, Pam Cruz is my guest for a Q&A with my Patreon group. Pam is a strong voice for Jonathan that inspires many. The first question is from Kim, a new member in Patreon. I had just a couple questions that I'm after re-listening to the podcast and then talking with everybody um, last week. Pam, I noticed it or I heard something about there was a fourth pillow missing. Or, was that ever found? Can you talk about that or no? Um, yeah, I think that's probably in the public information. Yes, there was a missing pillow. Definitely a missing pillow. I washed everything Jonathan took to his apartment because he hadn't gotten a washing machine yet. So I took his pillows and put them through the sanitary cycle that my machine has, got them ready and took them over for him. There was definitely a missing pillow. And it wasn't found, I guess? No, and I asked the police, you know, where, where's the pillow? And they, you know, they seemed to indicate that they didn't know. And I said, did anybody check her car? And they said, no. And I said, did anybody check the dumpsters nearby? And they said, no. Did you check the bushes? No. They didn't check. I assumed it had been dumped. I mean, that's all I can think of. Pam, do you want to talk about where one of the pillows was found? Oh, that was very interesting. Yes. Um, there's one pillow, if you look in the crime scene photos, that is kind of wedged under the door, the only door to exit and enter his bedroom. And you can tell that the door was kind of opened onto the pillow which I thought was pretty interesting because in every one of her many various stories, she was the last person to enter the bedroom, wasn't she? With Jonathan was in bed. So if somebody opened the door, put the pillow across the bottom, and then opened it again after he was shot, it had to be her. I thought that was, and it was very clear if you, if you I don't know if you shared the crime scene photos with them. Not yet, I will. Somebody was intentionally planning to muffle the sound. Nancy asked the next question. Nancy is a veteran Patreon member and actually a member of the same club Pam is, seeking justice for her daughter's murder. I'm fascinated. Could you tell us exactly how many pillows they were, what kind they were, and where were there four of them, where they all were? Well, you know, I wasn't there that day. Jonathan wasn't always the neatest about making his bed. 
So I don't know where they were in the room, you know, prior to any crime scene photos. At my house, the only time his pillows all hit the bed was the day of um, sheet changing. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know where they would have been. Presumably the sleeping pillows would have been on the bed. I made some um, decorative pillows that he could put over the front if he wanted to hide his pillows. Those, I'm assuming, were stacked on the floor like he always did at my house. But, I mean, when he lived here, the pillows were, the sleeping pillows were always right on the bed. And didn't you help him buy the pillows, Pam? Well, no, they were, they were pillows from my house. Um, I just made sure the kids all had an equal number of good pillows. But I know they were there because I washed each one with the, the sanitary setting on my machine and got those ready to take over. That's how I knew exactly what pillows were over there. I also ironed it, one of his shirts. I just made sure everything that went over there was really neat because he didn't have a washing machine yet. So I made sure he could at least have a couple of weeks of not thinking about anything like that. So it turned out to be beneficial because I know exactly what went in that apartment. Was it a, a just a regular bed pillow that was under the door? Yes. And, and what kind of pillow was missing? He had at least two down pillows. I don't know what pillows they took away, but I did not get one of the down pillows back. So I believe we looked at this when I first took the case and I don't believe they took pillows. Uh, the only thing that I have record of is that they took a section of the mattress. You're the right. Yeah. Mattress. Yes. So people from, um, John from our church helped John clear out the apartment and bring things back here. Um, regarding um, the statement that I saw online um, with the cutting that she did, is there any proof of that? Like, does she have scarring? And I know, Pam, I don't know if you can answer that, but I was just curious to see, like, is there actual proof of her past um, abusive behavior on herself? There's proof in a couple of ways. Um, yes, there are scars. She always wore those tennis sweatbands on her wrists or long uh -huh. sleeves. But when Jonathan went out, it was one of his first couple of dates. He told me that he looked at her arms and she had marks all up them, which my daughter also told me that she had seen. But he told me he saw all these marks on her arms and he asked her, he said he kind of just touched it and said, what is this? And you don't have to tell me if you don't want to. And then also Matthew mm -hmm. Kirk. He called the police, I think on at least two occasions, if I'm correct, and had her taken down to Parkland for cutting herself. Kim, to answer that, there are other witnesses that have testified to that as well. The next question comes from Leslie, a veteran of my Patreon group. Who repeated to Brenda what was said at the funeral? And was she a no-show? Is that correct? She was a no-show. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I don't know who told her. Um, it seemed like somebody had complained to her that she wasn't that much a part of it, unless she had just asked if they mentioned her. Uh, the first we knew about that, and the only thing I know about it, is from the text messages she sent to my daughter. Do we know? That it seems like she really does a lot of lying. Have we figured out why she would lie about where she was born? Um, it seems like a consistent thing with her. And I was wondering if, if there was any other information from family members, like her sister that spoke. Well, 
You know, we didn't ask her sister, did we, Sheila? We did. She said that she grew up in Oregon, right? Well, depending on who you talk to. Okay. The sister testified that she grew up in Oregon. I can't remember if she said she was born in Mexico or, you know what, Leslie, that's a great question. I'll go back and look. She was either born in Mexico or born in Oregon, one or the other. There were pockets of people that came over from Mexico and Oregon in the 80s. Interesting fun fact, there were um, attorneys back then in the 80s, you could actually buy a social security card. I've only seen a little bit of the crime scene photos because I didn't want to see Jonathan. But there's one where his arm is like it's out on the, the table there where his phone should have been plugged in. And it looks like some of the items are swept forward off the table and maybe some things are swept backward off the table. And I was wondering if maybe people were thinking he had like been feeling for that phone and then she took it away and hit it. Like maybe he wanted to call 911. It would have become become apparent to him pretty quickly that she was not going to get him help. So maybe he was trying to get help for himself. Caitlin is the youngest in my Patreon group and a veteran. She asked the next question. I think we were just talking about like how soon it was in the relationship when he gave her a key. And if that, like, had he ever given a key to a like previous girlfriends or. Well, he'd been staying with us until about a week before he was killed. So I don't think he gave anybody a key to my house, but I don't know how soon he gave Brenda a key. I'm assuming it was pretty early on because somebody had killed him within the week of the time that that he moved into that apartment. And I know that she had a key. She gave it back to my daughter. My daughter said it was a little bit funny the way she gave it back to her because she looked around to make sure it was just the two of them, kind of went around the side of a car and then handed her a key. But she had told the police what? You know, they didn't tell me a lot, but I think their reaction looked funny to me when we said something about her having a key. And she told Sharon that she did not have a key. First of all, she was in the apartment the night of the viewing. Somebody packed up a bunch of Jonathan's things in the bags. And she wrote to me telling me that she had been sitting in there every day after he was killed. It was very clear she had a key. She helped him find that apartment, like they, like looking for apartments? She did, and I did, yes. At a certain point, John went over and just got the locks changed because it was apparent to him somebody was going in there. And she wrote, I think it was to my daughter, afterwards, you know, shortly after, um, complaining that the key didn't work. And that's when she gave her the key. So I want to clarify, I think in the notes that we have, she also told the police that she did not have a key to the apartment. So they were surprised when she gave Danny the key back from what I have. And can you, that's what I, that's the other thing I wanted you to talk about is the night that John went in there and somebody was in the bathroom on the night of the memorial. Yes, he, um, we couldn't find some shoes for Christian to wear. So John thought maybe Jonathan had accidentally scooped up Christian's shoes with his own when he moved. So just on the way to the church, they stopped by the apartment 
And he said, as soon as he opened the door, it was apparent somebody was in the bathroom. There was a light on in the bathroom and the water was running. And so he knocked on the door and I think she didn't answer for a while, but finally she's, she admitted that she was in there. Can I clarify this? Cause I'm sorry to be so picky, but I want them to hear. John said he was about to call the police if they didn't identify themselves. Oh, I didn't even know that. But I do know that he asked her if she was all right. And she said, yes. And then they left for the viewing and she never showed up. And that night, Emily and Jacob drove back that way and the lights were still on at the apartment. That's also in my notes. Police just left it open like that for her to go back and forth in there. You know, who knows what was being, there was water running in the bathroom. What was happening in there? You know, that should not have been allowed to happen. Jason asked the next question, a veteran of my Patreon group. With the the 911 call, I've gone back and listened to it. I don't know how many times. And people talk, they can hear Jonathan in the background. I cannot hear him. Is there a time of death that would coincide the same time, you know, like his death would have been around the 911 call? I could answer that, uh, actually, Jason. So the police got there. They got there about, let's say, 1135. Prior to that, there was a neighbor who has testified under oath that she heard a shot 10 minutes before 11, I believe. She knows the time because she was just getting off the phone, and I will be putting that on the podcast because her testimony is amazing. Um, a couple of things about her. She lived at the, you remember the door knock? You heard mm-hmm. that, Jason, on there? That yes. was her apartment, and she and her boyfriend lived there together. There was the knock. And she didn't want to answer it because she heard a shot before then. And she was worried that somebody had a gun, obviously. And so she told her boyfriend not to open the door. Then, of course, everything happened and they stayed in their apartment. The police never, ever, ever, listen to me, never, ever knocked on the door to get her statement that night or her boyfriend's. Her statement was given after she and her boyfriend kept talking about it. And they felt like they needed to come forward with the information they had. And so they called the police and basically had to tell them they're coming down to give a statement. And she did. And she's amazing. Good Samaritan, don't you think, Pam? Oh, absolutely. She was a wonderful person. And she testified in her deposition that... The time of the shot in relation to the time that Brenda knocked on her door led her to believe that um, there was foul play. She said, you just would never wait that long to get help for somebody if you wanted them to live. It was powerful. So you'll, yeah. y'all will hear that. The fact that she had to go down to the police station that nobody talked to her that day Nobody taught, went upstairs to talk to the lady. Um, it was really quite sad, actually, Pam. I don't know if you remember. I did door knocks. Even though it was, what, 2016, I still went and did door knocks. I got the girl upstairs who happened to have lived there at the time of Jonathan's shooting. 
And she wasn't there that weekend, but she said the police never spoke to her. They don't know she wasn't there. Yeah, I don't understand that because they called Jonathan's friends in to speak to them. I thought that was interesting. They talked to all of Jonathan's friends, none of Brenda's friends. While you're thinking about that, let's take a commercial break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. John mentioned this in the podcast about the depositions. And as he said, the first set of deposition besides Padrome and Maria Chaw, they at least gave some information. But uh-huh. the second set... Do you want to talk to that? Oh, yeah, they they all indicated that they'd never really asked her about it. That they had never had a conversation, maybe even with anybody about it. They were all just very vague. They didn't know anything. They hadn't spoken to anybody. And what I thought was really funny was that each one of them, because they were all, you know, done individually, nobody heard each other. Every one of them, as they got up and walked out of the room, said, sorry, I couldn't have been more help. And it just, it felt weird. It felt almost like they had all been told to say that. It was weird because the first ones all had some pretty specific um, details that she had shared about that night. And then the next group knew nothing, had never bothered to even really ask the question. They just weren't curious. You know, I've never heard of anybody being that close to a death and not asking, not wanting to know what happened. And if the person's all right, how are they doing? Um, Brenda was a bridesmaid in in Allison's wedding, Allison and Alex, part of the family. So Uh she was in that wedding. Who else? Uh, Shirley, the judge's wife, she didn't know anything, correct? I don't think she did. One of, you know, Allison, her daughter, and Shirley each testified and one of them said that they had never spoken about it with each other. And the other one said, yes, they had spoken about it together and come to the conclusion that Brenda didn't do it. But one of them, obviously out and out lied, said, we've just never, never spoke about it. I mean, that's impossible to believe. Well, it's also contradicting each other. So, yeah. <laughs> You know, really taking care of Brenda after, making sure she went places, that she was having fun, that she was looked after. So, they, yeah, there's definitely some either not good memories or some changing of facts. The other thing I thought was really interesting, if I can just throw something in, is that both Henry Sue and Shirley had said to us, you know, that they had been concerned about Brenda before Jonathan came along. Uh, been concerned about the state of her mental health, that if anything, you know, were to, that she was just basically on the verge of snapping. And they were worried that if she had anything happen in her life, she might just snap. Uh, They did not recall that in their depositions. It's Padrome, right? Is that how you say his name? Padrome. Padrome. He he had dated, and dating is a 
general term, gone out with Danny two or three times. And seeing him in the deposition, he was the most disrespectful person in that process. I was embarrassed for him, his family, integrity, everything. I was too. It was very concerning. First seeing that side of him before, I was absolutely shocked. Just absolutely shocked. If he had been like that and ever showed up at our house to get Danielle, we wouldn't have let her leave the house with him. It was just, I don't know what happened to him. How as the mother of the victim, how does that make you feel that people are conspiring not to tell the truth or tell what happened? You know, it's absolutely shocking. I can't, I can't imagine ever doing that. I, I mean, it's just mystifying. That was one of the most hurtful things about the aftermath because we'd been going to that Kung Fu school for years. Um, We thought everybody was our friend. I remember Danny said that she couldn't wait until the day they all found out the truth because we were told by the police to keep quiet. So we just kept our mouth shut and kept our eyes open. And she was really looking forward to the day when she would be vindicated because those people were um, sheltering Brenda and being not hostile to Danny, but it was like everybody took Brenda's side, even though we hadn't even let on that we thought anything was amiss, you know, that was really hurtful. And then to find out when there was suspicion that they all really rallied around her, I just, I can't imagine. I know that none of my children would have done a thing like that. I don't know how you raise somebody that could do a thing like that. You know, I don't know why you wouldn't just tell the truth. If I thought somebody might have done something like that, I would want to tell what I knew. So either they could be exonerated or they could, you know, face the consequences for what they'd done. I think maybe Lucas said it the best. And it really reminded me of the, it reminds me so much of the Manson family, but kind of towards the end of the deposition, and I'm going to paraphrase, but just gratuitously out of, with not having been asked a question, he kind of started saying, you don't know what it's like to always want to belong to something. And then finally, you're a part of something, you're part of a group or part of something, and you just don't want to see it end. That's a paraphrase. But basically... I took it to me and he was explaining why he was taking the deposition the way he did. He was somebody that Danny was very close to. He was one of her partners. I think he was her main partner when she did this lion dance show. She really trusted him. He's a teacher. And so when he did his deposition and basically was, you know, you could tell he was following the family line rather than just saying what he could have said. And then he just blurted that out. And I think maybe the guilt was too much for him. But yet he hasn't come forward to tell anything else that he knows. I felt like in that moment, I didn't know if I was allowed to speak because it wasn't my deposition. I was just a spectator. But I felt like saying you might want to watch some of the Manson tapes and you'll understand how that is. But it really reminded me that those last set of depositions reminded me of the Manson family. Or people were willing to go to prison for life rather than than hurt their leader. That was something that I learned in this case, where dealing with one of the defense attorneys who said to me, 
usually in situations when people are covering for someone who did something wrong, illegal, the person that did something illegal will take a deal and get lesser time than the person covering because the person covering is just going to go through the process and never waver because they're loyal. So their loyalty will give them prison time. Never thought of it before. Manipulative people manipulate everybody around them. They manipulate people into covering for them. You know, even before this happened, we were doing everything we could to take care of Brenda because she makes herself out to be such a victim of life. And nobody likes to see somebody who claims to be in perpetual pain or, or um, perpetually damaged by life. And so nobody wants to add to that pain. And everybody's falling all over themselves to do everything they can for her to help her get better. And then come to find out a lot of these stories that she told of this victimhood, they're all different from one another. So you don't even know if any of them are true. You know, does she just do this? But all those people are still protecting her, you know. I feel like it's like one of those movies, you know, where there's one really evil person and only one person can see it. And um, everybody else is telling the person that can see it that they're crazy. And nobody sees it until you finally, until finally it all comes out. And I feel like our family has seen it come out. And those other people still believe her. The next question comes from Jenny. She is a Patreon veteran and a private investigator. I don't know when she said this, but when she told somebody, the police or somebody, that she, Jonathan told her to cover her ears. My original thought was kind of like the whole hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. Denying the truth is basically that, like you're holding secrets in. So, so like basically too, like you have them. And so even that, like covering them, like you're trying to keep them in because my other thought too, just for basic statement analysis stuff is that it's really hard to lie about what you saw. It's easier to just omit that part or breeze <laughs> by it uh, and say you didn't see it. It's easier to hold that that statement um, if it is not the truth. But it's harder to say if you did hear something or see something not to ever say anything about it. So like that, like the covering of the ears, is you know, knowing something or not denying the truth and keeping it in. So if I can't hear it. Didn't happen. <laughs> Again, she's the victim. Yes. She's the one. We don't want to hurt her ears. Yeah, know? he loved her so much. She was the most important and special thing in the whole world. And, you know, he could die, but he wouldn't even want her to have a loud noise in her ears. You know, even though in her first story, she claimed to be in a whole other room. You know? Yeah, so and I don't, I mean... So when I say that too, when I'm thinking of like what that means, I don't think that she actually, he told her that. I don't, oh, I don't no. think oh, we that's the truth that by any means. I think that there's, we have the need to tell, you know, to talk, right. And tell that we, it's hard to keep in the, in the lives or the, what we're hiding. So I think those, it was, it's interesting what comes out when you are hiding those things and that it's, you can kind of see through examples of different cases that sometimes it's the same thing. And look at in the 911 call when they um, said, did he do it on purpose? And she said, no. And then she said, yes, they cover your ears and then accidentally shoot yourself. That is a key point in this whole case. She says he didn't know that there was a bullet in there accidentally. That's some of the stories that are going to be told. You know, if he accidentally and he didn't know the gun was loaded, even though all of his guns were loaded and had safeties on, 
you know, that I don't know if you've talked about the magazine being hidden. I haven't you gone know. through that yet, but go ahead. You know, why would he hide evidence? The magazine was hidden. The phone was hidden. That is just weird. And the, the, he was really picky about his clothing. He liked to get so dressed up all the time. And he had two drawers of ties where he, he didn't fold them. He rolled them into these little rolls. And then he had them all neatly placed in this drawer with two top drawers in his armoire. The greasy magazine was shoved under those. There's no way he would have put that under there. And there's no reason he would do that. If you're going to shoot yourself... And you're definitely not going to limit yourself to having only one bullet and then shoot yourself in a really stupid place that's way more likely to leave you alive and paralyzed than to leave you dead. You know, shooting the way he was shot, if somebody would, and then you think she's going to call the police, right? You're, you're shooting yourself. There's somebody in the apartment. They're going to call the police. You're going to shoot yourself in a way that he would have lived probably if she'd have called right then. You know, they had, they had maybe 20 minutes before he passed away. If they had gotten there in 10 minutes and been able to do something, who knows, or five minutes. Hi, Pam. My name is Lana. It says, so my question was actually kind of along those lines about CPR. Did she know CPR? I don't know that. She was a teacher. Yeah. So I don't know how it is there. I'm, I'm in Canada. I'm the Canadian here. Mm -hmm. So in Canada, I've been a, I was a fitness instructor for 15 years and you had to have a CPR certification and you had to redo it every two years. Mm -hmm. And if somebody had an accident, say a heart attack in the gym, as a certified person, you have to, you can't say, I don't want to touch them or whatever, right? You can't do that. If you have a certification and you're there, you have to use it. So yeah, I don't know how it is in the States there, but in a dojo, I would think they would have to have that. There would be accidents all the time. Yeah, we never had any accidents like that. Um, you know, any bad accidents. The fighting was so controlled. But, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know, because you would think even if you weren't trained, everybody's seen enough of that. If you wanted somebody to live, you'd just even just start pushing on their chest. But that is a really good question. I'm going to pause for a moment for a commercial break. Sue, who is a veteran, asks probably one of my favorite questions during the session. When it comes to those text messages of trying to get people to lie and, and not come forth, where is the line for tampering with witnesses? Pam, don't you think that may be one of the greatest questions right now? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So... It's very interesting how it works. So people came in to the deposition. We suspect, let's use that word, that they committed perjury. Now, the trial's going to be January 12th. That may be their day of reckoning. Not sure. But these people, interesting all the different jobs these people have. It's everything from people that have secure clearance, people that, you know, run for office. These are professional people that know better, especially if you have a secure clearance. That's a big deal to go in and not tell the truth. 
if mm-hmm. they didn't tell the truth. Their text messages didn't line up to what they were saying, but that's for a judge, not for us. What yeah. were your thoughts about that, Pam? Well, yeah, I, I, we caught Maria red-handed. She told Tom she had no texts and emails with Brenda. And Tom handed us her phone and you and I together photographed. We couldn't even, in the amount of time we had, which was quite a while, we couldn't even photograph all of the messages she had. And they were messages very much about the trial, talking about, you know, events of that day, talking about how they were going to um, have just Danielle go to the, the, keep going to the Kung Fu school, but not me. And everybody was, had been told what to say to her. Um, they were, had this whole, you know, global plan to manipulate something out of Danielle. I guess they thought she was like them, that she would have betrayed her brother to be part of a group. They didn't know her at all. So because there were text messages state, telling people, giving them directive to lie under oath? I don't think there was anything specifically saying to lie under oath. They were directing behavior, let's say. I'll post them. We have them. Yeah. Public information. There were some running around, like saying who had been served, process servers. They were out when they were coming. Uh, the most disturbing to me was the plot to basically brainwash Danielle. That uh, You know, they, they planned a 21st birthday party for her. I'm very disappointed because it was planned by an attorney. And... I suspect what they wanted to do was get her very, very drunk and get information out of her because this attorney had been pumping Danielle for information, acting like she was her one true friend and was totally on her side. And from what we can tell, whatever she got out of Danielle, she was telling to Brenda. And then they were going to have this big birthday party and take her out to all these bars and get her really drunk. And I insisted on going. Then nobody wanted me to go, but there was no way I was letting her go. And they tried to separate us. They made me ride with Alex in a separate car while they all went in a bigger car with Danielle. And then they took her out. And she was 21, so I let her do what she would have done if I wasn't there. So she drank and drank and drank. I'm glad I was there because nobody put an eye on her to make sure she was safe except for me. But they just took her out and, you know, got her as drunk as they could. And then I just took her and took her home. But I'm sure if I hadn't gone, it would have been a whole different story. Just a lot of, just really under, and for an attorney to do that. She was the same attorney in the deposition that knew that there was an underage minor in the room with a, with Brenda and Mm -hmm. didn't, which again, as an attorney, it's kind of, I mean, you expect better behavior from an attorney. Not that, I mean, we've seen evidence that doesn't always happen. Yeah, I don't know if she is supposed to say that same attorney that admitted under oath that it was her belief that Brenda had killed Jonathan. And not only was it her belief, but she had also told her husband, you know, apart from anything we'd asked, that she believed she killed Jonathan. And yet she kept going to that school and keeps sending her children there, young children. She was worried about being ousted from the school. And that was. Probably the most shocking for me that you would care, but you know, that family, the family, that group. The family is very important. Henry said to me a few times leading up, keep the family together. 
keep the family together. When I told them we were leaving the school, which was because they had an attorney advising them, I'm sure that they knew the two-year mark was coming up for us to file suit. Um, It was just before the second anniversary. He came up to me and said, keep the family together. And I was, I didn't quite know what that meant, but I think I do now. There were so many moments. He said something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, you know, you lost one life. You don't need to lose a second. What was it, Pam? Yeah, it's tragic what happened to Jonathan, but we don't need to destroy a second life. Danielle, a veteran Patreon member, a private investigator, and happens to work with me. Why was all the loyalty towards Brenda when you guys were just as much a part of the, you know, the Kung Fu studio as Brenda was? Surprised me. Now, Brenda was always known to be, um, and this is what we were told when we got there, he was almost like a daughter to Henry. She was very, very special to him for some reason. And so Brenda always got a lot of leeway there. Um, I don't I don't know what went on before we got there. I don't know their personal history or if he you was know, just I can see them protecting her for if she had done this to somebody else that they didn't know but you know your family was so ingrained in that place as well Jonathan was a student there too maybe they yeah. thought that they could keep everybody and keep it quiet you know Danny and I really didn't say anything and I was as polite to Brenda as I was to anybody else there when we went they they may have Maybe have thought we were going to let it go. They didn't maybe, I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking. I, you know, we were keeping our enemies close, but I always had in my mind, maybe they're keeping theirs closer. You know, I don't, I don't know. I told the police early on, I thought Henry was such a moral person because he was always talking about doing the right thing. And now I've figured out people talk the most about it are often the ones that are not. But I told them, oh, if he knew that, that she had any, told the police, if he knew she had anything to do with this, he would. He wouldn't lie for her. Well, that was a big surprise. Um, a couple of times, this is weird, and maybe you guys will know where to put this. Um, when we would bow out at night after martial arts class, everybody lines up and the teacher will say what he has to say. And then you bow and then you're dismissed. Sometimes, he would, I think he's, he's a little odd. He would like to orate. Sometimes he'd talk forever and you're not allowed to leave. He, you know, he might go on for a half hour or more after class is over and everybody just had to stand there. But A couple of times he said he wanted only moral people in his school. And if you knew anybody that was a felon or anything like that, or had committed a crime, that you should come forward and tell him. And I thought it was so weird the first time he did it. And we didn't go forward and say anything because the police again had told us, just watch her, don't say anything. And then he did it again. And I kind of thinking about it, I'm kind of wondering if maybe he wanted to know what we were thinking or to know what we knew and was coaxing us to come forward. I don't know. That's very strange to me. It was weird. Something to do. Like that's not respecting you guys this time. Or to me, it's kind of like holding you hostage a little bit. Like, what do you mean? I can't leave. But one of the things that he would do, Pam, that I want you to talk to is how he would pick certain people to go out. Yeah. This was really weird too. After class, everybody was a little, it's just a tiny little area where everybody could sit and, you know, just cool down and talk to each other. And after class in the evening, he would pick people that were sitting there to go out. 
And he wouldn't always pick everybody. He'd leave people behind. So by the time he started doing that, I would just get up and leave. You know, it's like, I'm not going to be part of this, whatever this weird little game is sitting here waiting to be picked, either invite all the people or don't invite all the people. One day he actually drove up to me. I was going to my car. He got in his car and drove up and said, aren't you going to come with us? And I said, no, I've got stuff to do. He hadn't invited me. I mean, I got up and left before that. But it occurred to me much later, maybe that was some sort of wanting to make people feel special if he chose them. There were some adults there whose children were taking classes there that seemed to fawn over him like he was a celebrity. It was just so weird. And I kind of wonder if he was trying to foster that with everybody. Like, I chose you, you're special. If I didn't choose you, maybe you have to try harder. I don't, I don't know what it was, but it was really an odd and very rude thing to do, I thought, because then people would get up and leave and there might be somebody just sitting there that had to go home because everybody was going to dinner and they didn't get invited, which I'm glad he did at the beginning because it taught me, do not leave Danny there alone at all. She was 16 or 17 when we started at that school. And very shortly after we were there, a really nice older gentleman passed away. And they had a funeral. So John and even went, you know, our whole family went to the funeral. And then we went to somebody's house afterward. And Henry walked up and handed Danielle a glass of wine. And Danny didn't drink. Danny didn't even like wine. Um, And she was kind of looking at me helplessly. And I said, Danny doesn't need that. She's, I think she was 17. I think I said, she's 17. She doesn't need that. And he looked at me and he said, she'll be fine. And pushed it back at her. And Then, you know, Danny was just looking at me, you know, that helpless way that kids just kind of look at their mom, but try not to be obvious. And then I just looked at her and said, wait till he walks away and set it down. But how pushy to try and make somebody else's child drink alcohol after the mother has said no. So I was always pretty protective. They thought it was odd. He said in his deposition something about the mother was always there. And I was thinking, you're darn right I am. You know, I don't want you doing to her what I see these other children doing, going out places and having these kids unbelievably drunk that are way underage. You know, she told me he went, she went to his house one night with some kids and he was giving them beer and he brought Danny a beer and he said, here, you can have this one. This is 10%. I don't know about percentages of alcohol and beer, but he said this was like a 10% a really extra is that extra strong? Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. Average, the average beer is like four and a half percent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he would give her that and then bother to tell her he was giving her that is really weird to me. She was over 21 by then, but just weird. Just, I don't know. He was like imposing his morality on these kids and didn't care if they it gives right. me Nexium vibes, like a cult or something. Yeah. It was just weird that way. Here is where I'm going to stop. I know there are hours of questions regarding Jonathan's case. I will put out a bonus episode with more Patreon questions next week. This week, my favorite thing, my Patreon group. It is interesting how you attract like-minded people. My group is filled with compassionate members who help victims and on top of that, are very smart. I appreciate my veterans and welcome the new members. I have made deep connections with many of the members. When I travel, I reach out to Patreon members and grab dinner. 
Last week in Mississippi, Leslie and I were able to get a couple of dinners out. I enjoy the Patreon interaction, and I appreciate each of my members, especially the ones who have been with me from the beginning, watch me succeed and fail and stuck with me. Danielle, who has been a member since day one, is now working with me, and I am so excited to have her aboard. In every case, there is someone in the community who holds information that may be significant in solving a case. Relationships change over time, and many cold cases are solved when a former witness, friend, or relative is located who is tired of hiding information and shares that information with investigators. If you have any information about this case, please contact our voicemail comment line at 888-599-0008. You can leave an anonymous tip, or you can leave your contact information. We will call you back and speak with you directly. You can also email information to Sheila at SheilaWysocki.com. Without warning, Executive Director, Executive Producer, and Host Sheila Wysocki. Announcer, Tim Evans. <laughs>